You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you this morning. Uh, If you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be, and so it would really serve you to have a Bible out and open on your lap, and you might also uh, mark uh, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to spend just a little bit of time in, in there as well. So Mark 12, Matthew 6, and you should be set up and ready. So we are to the last section of Mark 12, and it's a really famous passage about the widow and uh, the might, her two coins that she gives here. And so it's going to be a passage that walks us into the broad topic of money and possessions. Now, I want to take a moment to preface a couple of things, just because I know of, of some of what just talk about money does to a room. You know, like I, I am very aware that some of you walked in and you just heard that we're going to talk about money and possessions. And your blood pressure just rose a couple of, of points, right? A couple of numbers. And so I, I think it would be fair to say that, that some people, they're just going to come in and hear that. And they're going to have some really negative thoughts instantly associated with it. That, that maybe you would feel like this lady felt who wrote this to her pastor after he preached on money and possessions. She, she said this. And a nice, kind letter to him. I was never so disappointed in a service as I was on Sunday. That's an ominous beginning right there. I have, an, I have an unbelieving friend that I got to come with me. And what were you preaching about? Money, exclamation mark. I can assure you she was not impressed, exclamation mark. And why money when there are so many other beautiful things to say? You'd better reconsider such messages in the future. Leave money to God and he'll handle everything else. Believe me, I know. I love this church and I love this line. And I usually like the sermons, but that was terrible. She signs off by saying this. Just twist that knife a little deeper. Signs off as, a Christian who loves to go to church to hear the word. I just love that. Now that would summarize that would summarize some of how people feel about it. So if you feel that way and you want to email me, my email address is Travis Wyckoff at Stonegate-Church.com. Feel free to email me anything you want. But she does raise a couple of just interesting questions. I want to just just preface this morning by addressing a couple of these. One is, should we talk about money and possessions as we gather on a Sunday morning? Is that an appropriate thing to talk about? And I want to make the case for, I think the answer is yes. I think this is something that we have to talk about along the way. And let me just give one of kind of the reasonings behind this. um, And let me kind of come at that reason by walking back a a few years ago to a church planter uh, friend in our church planting network, Acts 29, um, and he was planting in an an environment and in an area that was under this blasphemy law. And his picture is actually going to be up on the screen for you. Um, This is Rashid on the, the far left and his brother on the far right. And they were planting, doing church planting in a context under this law called a blasphemy law. It went like this. Whoever by words, either spoken or written, or by visible representation, or by any innuendo or insinuation, directly or indirectly, that defiles the sacred name of the holy prophet Muhammad, shall be punished with death or imprisonment for life, and shall also be made liable to fine. So a few years ago, he was charged under that blasphemy law. He was in prison, he and his brother, for a good while. And eventually, the powers that be acquitted them. They let them go out of the jail, and they're free. And on the way home, they come out of the jail. An angry mob approached and shot to death. Like his brother, he and his brother shot him to death in the street. Now, just take a moment to feel that. We're not talking like 30 or 40 or 50 years. We're talking about like a couple of years ago, that happens. Now, now just take a second to feel that. That's got sights and sounds that are horrible associated with it. And I could like put pictures up on the screen that would give you those sights and sounds. But I want you to consider for a second what living in an environment like that under this blasphemy law would do to a Christian community. Just think about that. I mean, just think about, would you be um, so eager to put that little fish on the back of your car, right? Would you be so eager to wear your Christian t-shirt, to come to church like this on a Sunday morning? Would you be eager to look at people and say to people, Jesus is the only way to God and there is no other? 
Like, would you be eager about church planting and about pastoring and about the work of gospel ministry? See, when you are in a context like that, under a law like this, it has a way of doing something to a group of people, like to a Christian community. And I think this is one of the ways I would describe what it does. It has a way of making a very clear distinction and a really like stark line in the sand between fans of Jesus and followers of Jesus. It just has a way of separating those two people. Like if, if you thought this morning that you might die because you're here, that's going to alter how you would think about it, wouldn't it? Like it's going to make a really clear line between fan and follower in that moment. Now, let me kind of translate this over into like our culture, America, doing gospel ministry here. One of the interesting things about just living as a Christian in America and trying to do gospel ministry in America is that there are very few things in our culture that that form like a kind of a line of distinction that draw that sort of line to help people see fan or follower. There's very few things. And one of the reasons why I think it is so important, in particular in our culture, to talk about money and possessions is because this topic, money and possessions, is one of the few things that actually do that. It's one of the few things that kind of draw this line of distinction. I might could say it this way. I think talking about money and possessions and looking at how your heart deals with money and possessions is one of those few things that kind of gives you a reliable guide, like a good litmus test to where your heart is, fan versus follower. Like, am I a person that just kind of admires Jesus or has my heart actually been transformed by Jesus to the point where I actually love him above everything else? It's one of the few things in our culture that can get us there. So so I would put the conversation about talking about money and possessions, I would put it under this category. It's a discipleship issue. And it's one of the most important discipleship issues among our folk and our culture. If we don't talk about this on Sunday mornings and in moments like this, we are doing a great disservice to every one of us in the room. This is one of the most reliable guides for you to get a good sense of your own heart and own spiritual health. Now, on the other side, she also raises this question. What about the fact that we know that there's going to be people who don't yet know Jesus that are going to gather with us in a morning just like this in this room this morning? Um, what, What about that? Should we talk about money and possessions in light of that? And my answer is yes to that as well. And one of the places that has helped me kind of get a sense of that is Luke chapter 12. In Luke 12, Jesus is going to talk about money and possessions. And, uh, and, and he's got this large crowd around him as he does it. And he pulls the disciples in to have this conversation about money and possessions, about this, this guy that's building bigger barns, about greed and all of these things. And he does that in an intentional place where the unbelieving crowd can overhear his conversation with the disciples. So I actually think there is something good about doing this in a, you know, in a way where it can be overheard by people who have not yet met Jesus. So let me just take one kind of step back and address those in the room who you have come in this morning and you know you're not a believer yet. Like you know you haven't put your faith in Jesus. You're still investigating, am I or am I not going to do this? You know, that, that's where you are. And let me just first say we're so grateful that you have chosen to make Stonegate your place this morning. We want to do a really good job of stewarding you, and we want, to, we want to do everything we can to serve you along the way. And I want to make sure as, as you overhear this conversation about Jesus talking with his disciples about money and possessions, that I, I want to make sure you don't misinterpret anything. When we have this conversation, like if I'm speaking, I think, for Jesus as he's talking to his disciples, Jesus is not overly concerned. Like his primary concern is not money and possessions. His primary concern is the heart of his people. And so when we have this conversation about money and possessions, it's not because we're wanting things from our people, but it's because we want things for our people. We want to all, we want to be a church family that is free from the love of money, so much so that we're actually free to worship Jesus with everything that we have, including our money. That's the goal of it. So I don't want you to misinterpret anything you're hearing um, as you overhear this. And secondly, I actually think there is a great benefit if you're a person in the room this morning that's just investigating, am I going to become a Christian or not? Like, where am I in all this? I think it's actually a really good conversation for you to overhear. And one of the things that you're going to see as Jesus talks about money is you're going to see what it means to be a Christian. And maybe this is the the simple summary of that. A Christian is a person who this supernatural work of God has like happened inside of their heart to to the point that they are prizing Jesus so much that everything that the world would consider precious is now expendable to them. Just think about that. That is what a Christian is. 
Somebody that, that God has worked in to such a degree that they are prizing Jesus so much. Like they have such affection and love for Jesus that everything that the world would consider precious is now expendable. They can, they can have it or they, they don't have to have it. it it's, they can live either way, with, with or without it. That's what a Christian is. And more than anything else this morning, we want to be inviting you into that. Into that sort of a work of God in your heart where God changes your heart and does this thing in you where you would look at Jesus like that, love Jesus like that, be transformed to that, where you're prizing Jesus above all else. Okay, so with that said, um, let me kind of give the context of this passage and then we'll jump in. So we're in the last several kind of verses here of of Mark 12, and Dan uh, picked up the preceding passage, verses 35, 36, and 37 last week. And in in these three verses, 35, 36, and 37 of Mark 12, it's the first time where Jesus begins asking the questions. In Mark 12, it's full of people coming up to Jesus and them questioning Jesus. But now he kind of takes the reins and it's his turn to ask questions. And his point in those three preceding verses, 35, 36, and 37, his point is to establish this, that I am not just the son of David, Okay, everybody had that kind of conception of the Messiah, but he's also clarifying this, that I am also the Lord of David, that I am, I am the Lord, I am the sovereign king of the universe, I am the ruler of all, like I am the Lord, and as Lord, you as my creation should be submitting to me, you should be worshiping and obeying me, your life should be lived in submission to my lordship. Okay, that's what Dan did a really good job of working through last, uh, last week. Now, in this passage, he's going to take this idea of lordship, that that he's saying, I am lord of all, everything. And he's going to specifically bring that to bear on money and possessions. Okay, so here we go in verse 38. He says this, and in, in, in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast." who devour widows' houses for a pretense and make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Verse 41. This is where we're going to be this this morning, primarily. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. So we're going to talk about this theme of gospel giving. And I want to come at this from four different angles. And here's the first one. I want want you to note in this passage that Jesus pays attention to our generosity. That that Jesus pays attention to that. That that generosity, how we deal with money and possessions, is not a small thing to God. That is a big thing to God. Like, he pays attention to these things. And in this passage, you see him paying attention to two things in particular. First of all, you see him paying attention to the givers. Look at verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people. Like he's actually sitting down, like it would be the equivalent of like at the end of the service, we pass around a little offering basket. It would be the equivalent of Jesus pulling a chair up to the end of your row and him watching your row. That's a little bit uncomfortable to think about, isn't it? But he is watching the giving. He is watching like who is giving. He, he, he knows that. He's paying attention. And commentators always pick up on that word watch, that there is intensity in that word. It's not just kind of a casual watching. It is to watch intently or to behold. That he is paying special attention to to giving. Okay, but it's not just to the giver that he's paying attention to. It's also to the gifts. It's both, the giver and the gifts. So look at verse 41 again and 42. It says this. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. So he's watching givers, but he's also watching gifts. Look at what it says. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. So let me just point out that when he's, when we're talking about, you know, Jesus watching the gifts, he knows two, like both sides of the coin here. First of all, Jesus knows and pays attention to what we have in our bank account. He knows what we have. 
Like if you look at this passage, he knows that this one lady walked in and she had nothing. All she had was two coins. But he also knows that the bank accounts of others looked a lot different. He calls them rich, that they have large bank accounts. So Jesus knows exactly what it is that you have, what I have, what we all have. So he knows that side of the ledger, but he also knows what it is that we give. He knows how big the check is. So he's looking at this and he knows that some people are dropping in big gifts. And, but this one particular lady just dropped in two small copper coins. So he knows both what we have on one hand and he knows what we're giving. He knows all of that and pays attention to all of that. Now, let me just briefly answer this question. Why is he paying attention to that? Why is there so much talk in the Bible about money and possessions? 2,350 verses dealing with money and possessions. Roughly half of Jesus' parables talking about money and possessions. Why does Jesus pay so much attention to that? Answer, because God loves you and cares for you and knows that money is a ruthless competitor for the affection of your heart. Now hear that. He's not paying attention because he wants to like slap you over the head. He pays attention because he is well aware of just how dangerous money and possessions are to your heart and to my heart. That's why he pays attention to these things. This is why it's not a small thing to God, our generosity, but why it's a really big thing, something that he would watch for intently, that he would behold, that he would pay really close attention to. So that's the first thing I want you to see, that Jesus pays attention to our generosity. Now here's the second thing though, that he doesn't just pay attention to our generosity, but Jesus evaluates our generosity by sacrifice. So it's not just that he pays attention to not only what we have and what we are giving, but that he evaluates all of that. Now that's where it gets a little more uncomfortable, doesn't it? That's not quite so comfortable thinking about this. He evaluates this, that he makes judgments about that, that he has something to say about our giving, that he evaluates it like that. Now, this passage is not all the Bible has to say about how God would evaluate giving. So like we, uh, a couple of years ago, we did a, an extended set of sermons on money and possessions. And one of the, or for two of the weeks, we spent time in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's the most comprehensive two chapters in the Bible dealing with giving and generosity. And in, that, in those two chapters, we took two weeks to work through 10 kind of attributes of Christian giving. So there's a lot that the Bible has to say about how God would look at our giving. Things like cheerfulness, that God actually is concerned about the motive of our giving. Things like regularity, that it should be like a regular giving, a deliberate giving, that we're actually planning our generosity, how it is that we're going to be generous toward God and other people. So we could talk about all of those things. But in this passage in particular, Jesus is leaning really hard into this, that God evaluates our giving based on its sacrifice, on sacrifice. So let me just give you a statement that will summarize it. When Jesus is evaluating our giving, Jesus evaluates our giving not by its size, but by its sacrifice. Okay, that's, that's where this passage is leaning us toward. This is what it's walking us in toward, is that when he evaluates our giving, he is not primarily concerned with the size of the gift, but of the sacrifice of the gift. That's the primary concern. Not the size, but the sacrifice. Okay, so now in light of that, just picture the scene. Here's the scene that we have in Mark 12 and in this story, verses 41, 42. The scene is Jesus has pulled up his chair right next to the treasury box. Like right where people put in the money, that's where Jesus has pulled up his chair. And he's watching all of that go down. So there's this long line. He knows the rich folk, the poor folk. He knows it all. And he is watching them give. And he watches a a few rich people walk by and they are dropping in bombs. They are making it rain. I mean, it's crazy. And then he watches this poor widow walk in who has a totally insignificant amount of money. It would be the equivalent of maybe like a dollar or two in like our current economy. So she has her dollar or two and she walks up to the, to the offering basket and she puts it in the treasury. And in that moment, Jesus steps back, stops everything and calls his disciples over. And that's where you pick it up in verses 43 and 44. He stops everything, verse 43, and he calls his disciples to him and said to them, 
truly, this is a way of emphasizing it. Truly, I say to you, like I want you to stop and see this, he's saying. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed. Now, how would that be possible? She put in $2. How would that be possible? Verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Jesus takes a step back and specifically commends her giving. It was $2. It was nothing in the grand scheme of things. And Jesus pulls back and says, now I want to hold this up and I want to praise this. I want to encourage you toward this. I want you to see that this would be the standard of like gospel giving. This is what the gospel should be producing in you and I. He's praising that and commending that sort of giving. Okay, now think about the dynamic that's that's going on here. Why is he praising the $2 gift and not the really large gifts over here? Why is that? So, So think about the dynamic. There's wealthy people who are walking in and they are giving large sums. But those big amounts are out of big accounts. Seeing the connection. Their big gifts come from really big bank accounts. That's the issue. Now, let me just be clear here. Jesus is not saying that big gifts out of big accounts are a bad thing. But what he is saying is that's not sacrifice. See, big gifts out of big accounts don't change the way we live. Right? And okay, now and let's just personally apply this for a second. And this is, this is virtually every one of us in the room. The way that we give, just think about what it costs you when you give. Like for these wealthy men that are giving these very large gifts, it is not altering the way they live. They eat at the same places. They do the same things. They vacation the same way. They wear the same things. Everything that they want, they're still getting, even though they're giving large gifts. So it's not that that's a bad thing, giving large gifts out of a large bank account, but Jesus is just making the point that it's not sacrificial giving. It's not that. To see sacrificial giving, you've got to get over into the poor widow's shoes. See, what, what she did was sacrificial giving. When she came in and dropped in the two small copper coins that she had, that was incredible sacrifice. Why? Because she is not giving out of her abundance like the wealthy folk. She is giving out of her poverty. Right? I, I love how it says it. It says, out of her very life. It's the word bios in the Greek. Out of her physical life, she is giving. Like she is giving in such a way that when she drops in those two copper coins, whatever like control she had of her life in that moment, she just lost. However like strong she was in life, she now became absolutely weak and vulnerable. Like, like that's, that's her giving. So so how she gave here cut directly into her life. Her giving those two coins meant that it was going to affect the way that she lived. It was going to affect the way that she ate. It was going to affect the way that she dressed. It was going to affect everything about her life because she just gave everything that she had. Are we seeing the difference? And that is what Jesus commends. It's that sort of sacrificial giving that actually cuts into the quick of our lives. That's giving. That's the sort of sacrificial giving that he is evaluating here. It's not the size of the gift, but the sacrifice that he is commending. And he is holding this poor widow up and saying, that is the sort of sacrificial giving that the gospel of Jesus Christ should animate and energize in our lives. Okay, so now let's take a moment to kind of apply this and kind of work around the edges of this. When it comes to giving in the context of like most Christian churches, I think one of the great myths that have done a ton of damage in the context of how giving works its way out and how generosity works its way out among churches, just like ours, is the myth that God is just about the tithe, like the the tithe thing. Okay, so I think if we just lined up 10 people and asked the question, what is it that you think God would want from like your giving? Like like what do you think the standard of, of giving that God would want for you would be? I think virtually 10 out of 10 people in our kind of church context would say, I think God wants me to tithe. I think he wants 10%. Okay, now, just as gently as I can, let me just say this. That is not correct. Like, I think there is an assumption in that that goes something like this, that that, that what God is concerned about is 
10% giving. Like this 10% is all that God is concerned about. Now the rest of this 90% is mine to do whatever I want to do with. And that is not how the Bible views money and possessions. The Bible views it this way. God has given you everything. He's the owner, you're the steward. And he's not just concerned about any 10% of what he has given you. He is concerned about the entire 100% of what he's given you. The whole thing is God's concern. He is paying attention to the whole thing, not a 10% thing. So let me just kind of work through an Old Testament view of this and the New Testament and kind of how they link up. So in the Old Testament, there was a definite teaching of of kind of giving and a tithe sort of a thing. And in the Old Testament, there were basically three primary ways that people gave. First of all, there would be a yearly 10% giving towards like the temple and the Old Testament priest, like the Levites that would kind of keep that whole thing going. They would earn their living by people giving to them. So there would be 10% of year given in that way. There would also be 10% given towards the festivals that the people of God would get together and and do to celebrate the work of God among them. So there'd be 10% a year for that. And then every third year, they would give 10% to help with the needy and and the poor. And so on a typical year, they're gonna be giving somewhere in the neighborhood of 25%. That would kind of be the normal thing. And on top of that, there would be certain moments and occasions where they would give on top of that. So that was Old Testament giving. Now you move into the New Testament. And in the New Testament, you won't find in any passage in the New Testament a tithe commanded. In Matthew 23, you'll see it commended but not commanded. So in the New Testament, the pattern of giving is not a tithe. The pattern of giving in the New Testament, the standard of giving in the New Testament is not a tithe, but it's sacrifice sacrificial giving is the standard of giving in the New Testament. That is what the New Testament is pushing toward, is to figure out where are you on the brink of it cutting into your life, and that's the standard. And you see this play out in like a 2 Corinthians 8.3, when Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to be generous givers, to encourage their generosity, he, he uses the Macedonian churches who were very poverty stricken. They did not have much. They were poor. And he looks at the Corinthian church and he says, I want you to look at the Macedonians. They gave, they're poor. And they gave not according to their means, but above their means. And that is sacrificial giving. That is the New Testament standard. Not according to your means, but above your means. And when you get into the above your means territory, like when it actually cuts into your life, like things about you and your lifestyle change because of your giving. When it cuts in that deep, you have now entered the territory of what the New Testament would call sacrificial giving. What this widow experienced, sacrificial giving. And that's the New Testament standard. That is where gospel giving is going to take us into the sacrificial territory. Now, let's just take a moment to apply this in the room. I wanna ask you this question. I want you to think about your last year. Like, so we're six months in. And so when you think about the last six months, I just want you to ask the question, are you giving in a way that would be called sacrificial? And just say on that. Think about that. And if you don't know what you've given, chances are you're a long way from that, right? So just think about, are you giving in a way that you would call sacrificial? And and, and man, I I know that in just even asking that question, in so many of our hearts, there's this reflexive little thing that that goes on that sounds something like this. I don't even want to ask that question, right? I mean, that's in all of us. And that's there because we all have the love of money running deeper inside of us than we would dare imagine. Just, just say on that for a second. Is, is the way that I'm giving, what I call that, sacrificial? Now, I think one of the, the things that naturally comes up when people are trying to determine that is, well, how much should I give? And here's the thing. I am not going to give you a number or a percentage on that. I don't know what sacrifice would be for you. But I think we all need to do the hard work of trying to figure that out. Like, where is giving going to really begin to cut into our life and alter the way we live because we are giving? That's what Jesus is pushing toward. Now, I think I can say this. I think for for some in the room, thinking of it in terms of a 10% tithe, I think what that would do for many of us is that would get us started down the road. So if you're not there, I think that would be kind of the minimal kind of get you down the road, sort of a number, to, a place to start. I love how one person kind of described how he would view the tithe, and I think it would be fair to say how the New Testament would view the tithe, or almost like training wills for a Christian. 
It's kind of like that first time you start riding the bike. Training wheels just kind of give you your balance and kind of get you a feel for what it looks like and feels like. That's kind of where a tithe would be for a Christian. It could be a good place for many of us to start, but it's a terrible place for almost virtually all of us to end. So I think a much better way to ask the question of how much should you give would be questions like this. You need to get, like, are you giving to, to such a point that your life fills it? There are things you can't do now because you're giving. There's, there's places that you can't go now because you're giving. Like, are you giving to the point that you are constantly reminding yourself that your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions? That your life and, and your significance and your security in life and your happiness and satisfaction is not going to be found in money and possessions, but in Jesus. Are you giving sacri- you know, deep enough to where, to where you feel that deep in your bones? Are you giving to those sort of places? And, and l- let me just address this, this one other thing. I, I think, you know, a lot of times, I, I, and I, I say this sometimes too, so this isn't all of us in this together thing. I am not like a tour guide in this thing. I'm a fellow traveler praying by the grace of God to grow in this. But I, I think there is this natural thing that, that comes up in each of our hearts when we think about giving that says something like this. But I can't afford to give that way. I can't afford that. And listen, when we say we can't afford to give, what, it, what, what most of us are saying in that moment is we can't afford to give in such a way where it costs us something. You seeing what's happening there? When we're saying we can't afford to do that, we're saying we can't afford the cost that's gonna be associated with that. Now, here's the ironic thing about what Jesus is leaning us into in this passage is that is exactly where Jesus wants us. On the brink of that question of, I can't afford to do that. That's exactly where he would want us to be in this place of dependency. And he would want us to give in such a way, listen, to where it actually requires faith to do it. Where it actually requires that. I love how C.S. Lewis addresses the question of uh, how much are we to give. This is in Mere Christianity. He says it this way. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch us or hamper us, us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do but cannot do because our giving expenditure excludes them. I think that is where Jesus is leading us. And that question of how much do we give, are we giving sacrificially? I think it's asking that question, are there things that we can't do because we're giving? I think that's, what's, that's what Jesus is leading us into. Okay, here's, here's the third thing. Third angle I want to work at just for a moment is why is Jesus concerned about sacrificial generosity? Why is he concerned about this? Why does he talk about this? Why does he pay attention to it? Why is he in this passage holding this up as a model, as something to to imitate? Why is he doing that? Why is he commending this? And there is so much we could say about it. I just wanna say two quick things. And they're both gonna be found in Matthew 6. So if you wanna turn back to Matthew 6 for a moment. I just want you to consider two things in the answer to the question of why is Jesus concerned about it? And here's the first thing I'd love for you to consider to consider sacrificial generosity and your eternity. So to think about how your generosity now affects your eternity in the future. So this is how Matthew 6, this is Jesus speaking in 19 and 20. This is what he says. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Okay, so he's saying in this, there are two options that all of us have when it comes to wealth, money, and possessions, our treasure. There's two options. Here is option number one. We can lay up earthly treasure. But he, he clarifies what is gonna be certain if you lay up earthly treasure. That there will be a day, either in this life or when you die. So there will be a day where you lose it all. So you can store it up, but you're going to have this real temporary little moment where you get to enjoy them, and you are going to lose it all in that moment when you die. So option one, store up, you know, earthly treasure, but you're going to lose it sooner than later. 
Option number two is you can lay up treasure in heaven and here is the great news and enjoy it forever. Option one, store it up now on earth, you lose it. Option two, you store it up in heaven and you enjoy it for all of eternity. Those are the two options. And part of what Jesus is saying here is, why wouldn't you go with the second? Why wouldn't you be about laying up treasure in heaven? Now, let me just clarify. This passage is not primarily concerned, and the emphasis of it is not saying you need to renounce all of your treasure here, your earthly treasure. That is not the the primary point of the passage. The primary point of the passage is not renouncing your your earthly treasure, but relocating it, like like accumulating heavenly treasure. That's the the emphasis. He's saying, why not use your earthly treasure now in such a way where you will gain treasure forever? Why not be about the work of that, of relocating it? I love how Randy Alcorn, in his little book, The Treasure Principle, I love it. We give it to all of our new folks coming into our church now. Um, And it's The Treasure Principle, and I don't want to like steal all the thunder from the book, but here is The Treasure Principle in a statement. The whole point of the book is, and this is straight out of Matthew Matthew 6, the point is you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's the treasure principle, that there's going to be a day where if you like hoard your stuff now, there's going to be a day when you lose it all. But you can send all of that stuff that you're hoarding out, you can send all of that forward, and you can enjoy that forever. Now the question is, how do you send that treasure forward? How do you lay up treasure in heaven? And I think the simple answer is this. You take whatever earthly treasure God has entrusted to you and you begin to invest that earthly treasure into God's kingdom purposes. And when you invest that treasure into God's kingdom purposes, I think the Bible's teaching this, that it now relocates the treasure. When you invest it, when you let go of it and investing it in God's kingdom agendas, you let go of that treasure now and you get it back for forever. That's how you do it, investing in God's kingdom purposes. And so I think the question is, why wouldn't we be about that? To kind of drive home the whole point of, of storing up treasure in heaven, Randy Alcorn uses the illustration of Confederate money. So he kind of pulls back from the Civil War days, and he says, imagine that you're a northerner and you're in the south, and you have acquired all of this Confederate money. But you know, you've got inside information that the war is about to be over. And you know that when the war is over, all of your Confederate money goes to nothing. Let's just say you have a million dollars of it. That million dollars, as soon as the war is over and everything switches back to U.S. dollars, that entire million, you know, million dollar stash of Confederate money, it is then zero. So he's saying, what would you do if you were a smart Southerner? Knowing that the war is over, you're going to go back to the north, everything's about to be translated back into U.S. dollars, what would you do? Answer, you would take what you need to live on, and then you would begin to translate and, and, and move over to exchange currencies with everything else. You'd begin to lay up U.S. currency. Because you know there's going to be a day soon where all of your Confederate money is worth nothing to you. And he's saying, in light of that, like transfer that over to eternity now. There is going to be a day where all of your U.S. dollars, every dollar, every cent that you have, listen, is going to be worth nothing to you. You know that? Everything you have, all the toys, all the money, all the bank accounts, there's going to be a day soon where it means nothing. And Jesus is saying, why wouldn't you begin to store up treasure where it's really going to count, where you get to enjoy it for forever? Why wouldn't you lay up treasure there? And when it comes to money and possessions, I think one of the things it tests for all of us is do we really believe that there's an eternity? And do we really believe that our generosity now affects our eternity? And if we believe those two things that Matthew 6 teaches, I just think it would have a drastic impact on how it is that we would view that what God has entrusted to us, wouldn't it? I mean, I think it would have a drastic impact on that. So consider sacrificial generosity in light of eternity. But here's the second thing to consider. is consider sacrificial generosity in your own heart. In your own heart. What you do with money or desire to, to, to do with it can make or break you for all eternity. It's that serious. And this is what Jesus is getting at in verse 21 of Matthew 6. In verse 21, Matthew 6, he says this, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's saying two, two things, two sides of the same coin. On one way, he is saying, look at where you can effortlessly sacrifice and spend money. That is showing you where your heart is. And listen, all of us are sacrificing financially for something. 
Right now, you are sacrificing for something financially. For some of us, we are sacrificing as we save money in our bank account. For others, we are sacrificing as we buy new things and we spend on this and that and the other. But every one of us is sacrificing somewhere financially. It's just a question of where. And where you are sacrificing right now is showing you where your treasure is. It's an indicator of where your heart is. Where your money naturally can go and and you can be sacrificial toward is showing you exactly what has captured your heart. Now, here's the other side of that coin, though. Where you give sacrificially has a way of pulling your heart in that direction. So it doesn't just show your heart where it is now. You can also use money and possessions to to kind of move your heart in a different direction. It's showing your your heart where it's going to be going. So if you were here today and and you're wanting to say, you know what, I want a deeper love for the local church. You know how you get a deeper love for the local church? Start giving sacrificially toward it. If you were saying, I want a deeper love for adoption and the cause and care of the orphan. Do you know how you get a deeper love for that? By sacrificially giving toward it. If you're here and you're saying, I want a deeper investment into church planting. I want my heart to be wrapped into that thing. God's kingdom agenda of planting churches. You know how you get that? By giving sacrificially toward it. Like where you're giving sacrificially, it's almost like a magnet that is drawing your heart toward it. And so if you want your heart to be moving toward God, give, to, give sacrificially to the things that God cares about and your heart's naturally gonna begin getting grafted in with God. It has a way of pulling your heart there. And this is why money and possessions are so dangerous. They, they have this seductive voice that, that is so capable of luring us away from affection and a love for God and a love toward it. So seductive, so dangerous. So consider money in your heart. I think this is why Jesus is so wrapped up and pays so close attention to how we interact with money and possessions. He knows just how dangerous it is. Okay, we're gonna finish here. Jesus's generosity energizes our generosity. I just wanna make sense of this for a few minutes here and we're gonna close up. That Jesus's generosity is what energizes our generosity. When we're talking about sacrificial giving, when we're talking about that, giving like this widow, she put in everything she had. We're talking about that. If I were gonna name what I think is the number one issue that keeps us back from that, 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 that makes us shrink back from even asking those sort of questions, here's how I would label what I think is the number one issue. I would use the label fear to describe it, fear. That when you think about how that widow gave in in Mark 12, she gave to the point where it cost her everything. Listen, it cost her the control, what little control she had, it cost her that. And that is what sacrificial giving does for every one of us in the room. It, it, It strips us from the illusion of control in our life. It makes us feel weak and vulnerable. See, when we get to the point of sacrificial giving, now now we can't just go eat what we want to eat, do what we want to do. It actually requires now us to live by faith in God. It actually requires that of us. And so I think this is why fear is such a huge issue when it comes to this. It makes us feel weak and vulnerable to be in the position of, I've given so much that I have to depend on God for my next breath. There's so much fear associated with that. And I think this is why in, uh, in Luke chapter 12, when Jesus is talking about money and possessions, I think this is why Jesus connects the two. So in Luke 12, he is warning us about the dangers of greed. He's warning us that, that your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. It consists in Jesus, not in money and possessions. And he tells the parable of this rich fool who was building bigger and bigger barns, thinking that in those bigger and bigger barns that he was gonna have life. And in an instant, his life was required of him and all of his riches, heavenly, you know, earthly treasure, now as he's standing before God, meant nothing, meant nothing to him. And in verse 21 of of Luke 12, Jesus says, don't be the rich fool, lay up treasure in heaven, give sacrificially, be like this widow, sacrifice like that. And then in verse 22, it's the most interesting thing. He calls the disciples to himself. Just after saying, give sacrificially, lay up treasure in heaven. Next verse, verse 22, he calls the disciples to him and says, disciples, let's talk. Don't be anxious about your life. Don't be fearful about your life. Don't be fearful about what you're going to eat. 
Don't be fearful about what you're gonna, what you're gonna wear. Don't be fearful. Don't be anxious. You don't have to be. And, and then Jesus says, disciples, don't be fearful. Hey, look at the birds of the air. Look at the ravens. Do you see the ravens? They don't have barns. They don't have a grocery store. They don't like plant seeds. They don't harvest any of those things. And you know the amazing thing? God feeds them. And if that is how God would care about a raven, how much more would he care about you as son or daughter? And then he says, hey, disciples, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the, do you see how they're adorned with such beauty? They didn't toil that. They didn't spin those clothes. God gave them those clothes. And if that's how God cares for the lilies of the field, the grass that is here one day and gone the next, if he cares for grass like that, how much more would he care for you, a son or a daughter of his? How much more? And then he looks at him and says, oh, you of little faith. He's just, he's just asking them and inviting them into living by faith in God as their father. I mean, come, come into the, these sacrificial waters, these, these generous waters, and, and look at what it looks like to, to live by faith in God, your father. Now, I think that begs, okay, so let me, let me just give the remedy really quickly. The remedy to that fear that we all feel deep in our bones when we think about sacrificial generosity, the remedy to that fear is the fatherhood of God. That's the remedy. That is how we get over that fear. And and like this widow to the point of we are willing to give until it cuts deep. But it begs this question. When we're talking about the fatherhood of God, it begs this question. Not just is God a father to us, but is he a trustworthy father? Can we really depend on God in those moments that if we get to the line and really give like sacrificially like this widow, can we really believe, can we really trust that God will be our protector, that God will care for us, that God loves us? Is God really trustworthy enough to get to that ledge to? And if we want the answer to that, we've got to get past the birds, we've got to get past the grass, and we've got to look directly at the cross. And this is what Mark 12, the story of this widow, points to. When it says that she gave out of her very life, that is just a dim picture of how God has given to us, isn't it? That God has given to us out of his very own life, out of the life of his own beloved son. That this is how generous God has been to us, that God gave to you and he gave to me. His son left heaven. Jesus leaves the riches and wealth of heaven for the rags of a stable. God gives like that, that God would give his son to live a perfect life in place of your very imperfect life and my very imperfect life. That Jesus perfectly fulfilled the commands of God in your place. That is God giving to you. And when we look to the cross, it is the supreme example of God's generosity to us. It's the extreme example of God's love and care for us that God would be generous enough to give us a substitute where Jesus climbs up on the cross and all of God's wrath for God-belittling sinners like you and I gets poured out on Jesus and absolutely crushes him, pulverizes him. Jesus, our substitute on the cross, he got all of our sin, we got all of his perfection. That is God's generous gift to you and me. God gives to us. This is how much he cares for you and for me. I love how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says it this way, you can't fix your gaze on the cross without knowing that God cares beyond words for you. That God is not just a father, but he is a perfect father who loves you and cares for you. And it's when we begin to feel that deep in our bones that our hands start to open up and that generosity, sacrificial generosity, actually begins to flow. Amen? Let's pray together. I'm going to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press any of the things that would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't. And if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, man, what a wonderful morning for you to receive the generosity of God. That God would send his beloved son to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death that you should have died. So that now when you put your faith in Jesus, you turn from your sin, put your faith in Jesus, that you're welcomed into the family of God, that God God adopts you. He makes you a son or daughter. He saves you from his wrath. 
So if you're here this morning, man, I just want to encourage you to receive that generosity from God. Hold up your life and say, God, I am putting my faith in Jesus, turning from sin, putting my faith in Jesus. I'm trusting you to credit Jesus' perfect life to my account. Save me. And the great news of the gospel is that God this morning will do just that. So if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to grab one of those cards underneath your, your seat to fill that out and to check that little box on how to receive a relationship with Jesus, and we'd love to follow up with you on that. And for the rest of us in the room who are believers, who are sons and daughters of God, man, that God would begin to move us to the place of this widow. That we would see that, like this widow, God gave from his very life and God gave to, to you and I to such an extent that we are now wealthy in Jesus. We have everything we need for this life and the life to come because of what Jesus has given to us. And that that would open up our hand to be generous people. I love how one author says it, where the lightning of grace strikes, the thunder of generosity is sure to follow. I mean, I'm just praying that the lightning would continue to strike, that there would be just a continual awareness of just how generous God has been toward us and that the thunder of our generosity would begin to sound toward God and other people. So for all the Christians in the room, for, for you that are sons and daughters of God, I think it would be just a, a good thing for you to think about that your internal grasp of the gospel, how much you believe the gospel deep down in your bones is seen in large part by the outward expression of generosity. So I just want to invite you to take a look at your generosity and ask the question, what is it saying about my internal grasp of the gospel? And Father, I pray that the way that we give sacrificially, I pray the way I give, God would, would show evidence that I actually believe in the good news of Jesus. So God, will you take me there? God, will you take us there as a church family? God, will you meet us in the middle of that fear that so often gets stirred up? God, will you convince us of your fatherhood for us, that you love us and care for us? And Father, it's in your good name that we ask all this. Amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we sing? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.